Hey, everyone. This is Jose Nino bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the great pleasure of bringing back on Daniel McAdams, the executive director at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. For those unaware, he did make an appearance on the show over a year ago, and I will link that show to in the show notes for future reference. But anyways, Daniel, how have things been going for you in the past few weeks? Well, that's an interesting way of asking, Jose. It's great to be with you. Uh, I've been pretty upset watching uh, Bloodshed over the past few weeks, actually over the past few years. But yeah, um, so other than that, uh, and a few viruses, um, doing okay. Yeah, we are we are living in a very crazy and tumultuous period of like geopolitical analysis for the past. I, I would, I mean, given like the whole Israel thing, yeah, the past like nearly two months have been hectic. But I'd say the past year, especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's gone to like a whole nother level. For those of us who've been in this space for well over a decade, I mean, we've seen a lot of crazy stuff, but now it's reaching some pretty like frightening levels of instability that could have nuclear implications. But anyways, yeah, let's talk about Israel, Hamas. Uh, What were your initial thoughts on the October 7th attack by Hamas, and where do you think things are going to be going as this conflict rages on? Well, it was a very weird day. I mean, let's, I don't know if you're like me, I was glued to Twitter. Uh, There's a lot of stuff happening real time, Twitter and Telegram. Um, That's pretty much the only place you can go if you want to get original source stuff. And I was shocked because uh, I, like probably most people, we're under the impression that, you know, you could barely pass wind in Gaza without the Israelis coming over and chewing you out for it. You know, and here are these guys like basically flying over on flying lawn chairs with AK-47s wreaking havoc across uh, wide swaths of land that they should not have been able to access, you know, including military bases of all things. And I just sat there thinking, what the hell is going on? How can they do this? How can they go into military bases, uh, you know, and throw rocks at tanks and, you know, take selfies with tanks? And, you know, we were all led to believe that Israel just absolutely invincible, both in its intelligence uh, and its ability to keep the um, Palestinians locked up behind their fences and in their just pure raw military strength. And here you see that you saw that whole myth. On October 7th, that whole myth just disintegrate before your eyes. And I have to say, it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. I mean, it's up there with me watching the planes hit the towers, thinking, this is really, really weird. Yes, I actually agree with that, too. Because you would think that the Mossad, one of the most vaunted intelligence agencies on the planet, um, would have been able to, like snuff this whole plot out, but it looks like a total institutional failure in Israel's taking place. And I think people tend to forget this too. Israel was mired in a lot of domestic instability prior to this attack. Yeah, And I'm actually of the view, this is like a hot take, but when you factor in like the growing like ultra-Orthodox population that is like largely on the public dole there and that is um 
generally not that down to the Zionist project. And then like, just like this overall emergence of this like fanatic Israeli hard right. And against like the backdrop of like a more multipolar world, I think that if things continue the way they are, the Israeli state as we know it may not be long for this world. What what do you think about that? Do you think that Israel is just going to be mired in like increasing levels of instability from now going forward? Well, even uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who I don't think either of us would uh, would call the brightest bulb out there, even Austin himself said that with its reaction and with its uh, actions in Gaza post October seventh. Israel faces perhaps a tactical victory and that it can kill a lot of people. He didn't say that, but a strategic defeat. Uh, and that is pretty uh, fascinating coming from a high-ranking person in the Biden administration, which, of course, is scrambling because with uh, October 7th and particularly Biden's initial reaction to October 7th, which was to fly over immediately uh, powwow with Netanyahu, give him a carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. Um, this whole thing is imploding Biden's uh, Middle East foreign policy, and it's um, absolutely gutting out a good portion uh, of his domestic support, of his core domestic support. And you're talking about young people who, if you look at the polls on Israel and Gaza, they do not carry the same opinions that their parents, and particularly that their boomers, which are probably their grandparents by now, carry when it comes to views on Israel and Gaza. They are not reflexively pro-Israeli. So he's lost the young vote, and he's also lost the Islamic vote in the United States, to the point where these people are going to actively campaign against him. Uh, places like um, states that are, have a very high Michigan, for example, Look yep, at the numbers in Michigan. Yeah, exactly. And you say, well, they got nowhere else to go. Uh, they're not going to vote Trump. Probably true. Trump is pretty smart and good at triangulating or whatever. So he may he may come out with something to throw a bone to them. Who knows? But nevertheless, they could just say, you know, forget it. I'm going. I'm staying home. I'm yep, not going to vote. Yeah, I'm sending it out, man. I'm not going to vote for this guy. He's got blood all over his hands. You know, genocide, Joe. So it really is a self-inflicted wound. Um, and again, it's just this, uh, and you put it very well, Jose, the world all around us has fundamentally changed. They, the, the tectonic plates have shifted. And you've got Washington, which is a sclerotic old dinosaur, just with no self-awareness, not realizing as it looks around that the asteroid has hit the Earth and a big dust cloud is up in the air. And they're still prancing around as if it were, you know, the, the, you know they're, they're up to their eyeballs in clover. Uh, and so, yeah, the world has changed. They don't see it, but it's happening nonetheless. No doubt. Yes, there are some big changes taking place. And there's so many people that are still stuck in the 1990s unipolar moment that have not adapted to this reality, much to our uh, geopolitical dismay. Now, you have like the typical neocon chorus calling for some type of like increased military aid, if not like a direct military confrontation with Iran. Because when I first saw this conflict pop off, 
my initial instinct was that, yeah, if I check Neocon Twitter, they're going to instantly blame um, Iran for this Hamas attack. It's just like clockwork. Unfortunately, it wasn't just like the Neocon crowd and, and this like fanatic like faction of that cohort that is very anti-Iran that got into the mix. But you saw a pretty good deal of America first and even some libertarian people really slavishly get behind Israel. What do you think explains that? And do you think like the American right still has like this unhealthy obsession with Israel? Yeah, you know, that's the one thing I have to say, Jose, you know, as much as I hate admitting when I'm wrong, I had thought that the America First foreign policy movement, the people on the right who are uh, increasingly opposed to the Ukraine war, I had thought that, yeah, not all, but a good chunk of them were with us philosophically uh, and would oppose Gaza-Israel war, which in a way has some similarities to the proxy war with Russia through Ukraine, Certainly. But I have to say that I have been very disappointed and very wrong with the whole like uh, conservative movement out there because on a dime, they all shifted. Uh, and we can name names if we want even, but people who were pretty sound. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, policy. go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah. Think about it first. But certainly. And then the thing is that you start following the money, Jose, and you start looking at all of these conservative news outlets that have sprung up. And, you know, I'll name the Daily Wire as one of them. And there are plenty oh, of August. others. Yep. Yeah, plenty of others out there. Uh, American Greatness, uh, The Federalists, what have you. Um, they're all out there. And I've all been sort of thinking like, hey, well, maybe the right's not so bad after all, <laughs> you know. And then I look and boom. Uh, they are all lockstep when it comes to this. I mean, not just like, hey, uh, you know, Israel, the, the, you know, it really sucks what happened to them. They need to deal with this problem. Okay, that, you know, that's an argument. That's an argument. But the reaction was so far to the extreme and can remain so far to the extreme. Right, people like Justin Hart, he was great during COVID. He was, he's, I think his thing is like Rational Grounds is the name of his substack. And I followed him because he was very rational. Uh, a person of the right. And he just flipped his lid when it came to this. And all of his all of his followers turned on him like, what the hell happened to you? He just flipped his lid. And it happened over and over again. So that's been a real disappointment. But then again, fact of the matter is, Jose, you know this too, certainly at the Ron Paul Institute, we know this, as a small organization without a daddy Warbucks behind you, it's tough to raise money. And it's a hell of a lot tougher when you're pro peace. And so yeah. if you look at the you look at the funders of these daily wire types and all these groups, and you'll find a handful of big time money bags, and they have, you know, one or two issues are their issues. And one is support of the right wing uh in Israel, number one, above the US. You have a lot of people like this there. What is it, Adelsons and all these guys? But there are plenty of them. Uh, and so when you're funded by those people. You're not, you know, to the tune of, of, of tons, tons and tons of money. Your whole, your whole livelihood depends on this one guy. Then you're not going to, you're not going to spit in his eye, you know? And that's why, although it's very frustrating to be a small organization like we are, we're funded by hundreds, we're funded by thousands of people with small donations. Uh, and so it allows us to have that kind of independence 
that these um, right-wing groups don't have. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I, um, I noticed as well with Robert Barnes, who I actually think is pretty sharp on a lot of issues, um, also kind of fell for this. But I still generally respect him because I did, I did see a silver lining here, though, in, in this, that a lot of the right that is pro-Israel, especially more in the America First type, um, they treated it now more as like a policy, uh, like a policy disagreement as opposed to like in previous decades or like in like the early aughts where they were trying to just cancel you and destroy your career. It seems like the pro-Israeli right, especially certain facts of it, don't have like that same power of canceling people for having these like dissenting views. It's like now um, it's mostly just like, Two people just having a policy disagreement with respect to like a country in the Middle East and a very volatile region, but it's still disappointing, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, I think we're moving in that direction. We're not there yet, and I think if they could cancel you, they would. The thing is, they can't do it anymore. And for all for whatever faults he may have, and I'm sure there are plenty. You know, we have Elon Musk to thank for that because. Opening up Twitter, and I'm sure it's not perfect. I'm sure people are leaning on the levers and what have you. But opening up Twitter to more of a debate has allowed, you know, citizen journalists, alternative journalists like Glenn Greenwald, who's done terrific investigative work on like what really happened on October 7th. Um, all of this stuff has been able to be debated and put out there on Twitter with no one. Um, except probably the more extreme, I don't even know, but being being canceled for it. So I think that's one thing. I think they would like people canceled. I mean, I, I, saying a name, I, I'm disappointed in someone like David Rubin, who was a champion of free speech, man. Oh, hey, man. free speech, oh. 100%. And then when, when this thing happens, like, shut up. If you don't agree with me 1,000%, you should die. You know, and yeah. everyone called him out, like, what's wrong with you? Are, you know, are you high? It's just ridiculous. But Barnes was bad. His colleague, Viva Fry, he had a panic attack because Justin Trudeau posted a scary Halloween picture. And he said, oh, and there are that. stories of de decapitated babies. How can he be so completely, you know, uh, unsensitive? And of course, the decapitated baby was totally Israeli PR propaganda. Um, but they, they did. They all freaked out, you know. But I, I do think you're right, certainly on the second half, which is that it's not having the sting. And people are realizing, I think, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, Jose, people are realizing that you can be critical of uh, the Old Testament says an eye for an eye. It doesn't say 16,000 eyes for an eye, you know? And so yeah. people be, can be critical of the massive disproportionality and of the internal politics of Israel without hating Jewish people, you know, and people are starting to realize that. Now, there are people who just hate Jewish people, and so when something like this happens, well, it's like their birthday. They can put all of their theories out there. But I think there are more rational people. I would like to see more of those people that are not on the left emerge. But nevertheless, I mean, there are people that are emerging. I mean, I never would have thought Candace Owens would have been so yes. brave. I'm being trashing <laughs> unlikely her hero. You know, yeah, unlikely hero. I mean, uh, people like Lauren Chan, Kim Iverson, these are not people that you would associate with the left. They're not squad fanciers, um, but they've been very brave about this. So 
you're right. There, there is, there are some to celebrate, and even the reflexively psychotic like Fry and Barnes, they've chilled out. Like they sort of said their piece, and that you don't see them posting about it that much anymore. So maybe they've just taken a deep breath and you know taken yeah. some uh, some smelling salts. I don't know. I'm sure they still feel that way, but hopefully they've just taken a deep breath. Yeah, I mean, I'll cut them some slack because if they're like our quote-unquote opposition, I tolerate that over, say, like people like Nikki Haley, uh, <laughs> Lindsey Graham, all these like just total fanatics. Just these people are just empty suits. There's nothing upstairs when you're dealing with these types, and I think like. The, to me, the first priority would be to, um, if I were like still in GOP politics, would be to run those people out of the party, and then we can hash out whatever debates emerge from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just corresponding with a friend of mine recently, and I was kind of bemoaning the fact. I mean, what we do need is a Pat Buchanan, which we don't have. You know, yeah. I mean, we need a Buchanan coalition of people. Who are who are opposed to our Mideast policy, and you know, and I I honestly think that both conserv the right and uh, a good part of the the left, the neocon left, they want to be sure that when people think of opposition to our Israel policy, when people think of opposition to what Israel is doing in Gaza, they want that opposition in the U.S. to only be the squad, to be people that are have discredited themselves to some degree, and even if they haven't are so distasteful and are so considered so outside uh, the mainstream debate uh, that, hey, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about what's going on in Palestine. Oh, so you're with uh, Tlaib and uh, and Ilan Omar. You're going to marry your brother or something. So they want that to happen. They don't yeah. want rational, conservative-minded or libertarians questioning it. And so that's why you see things like um, this bill they passed this week I was ask uh, in, you about that. in the house, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to get ahead of us, but that's why they put forth this bill saying that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, which is so insane on the surface that it basically. And you know, uh, 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 Jerry Nadler, a liberal Jewish representative from New York, he pegged it perfectly. I don't agree with him very often, but he said basically. Like, whoever wrote this bill has no idea about Jewish people or Jewish history. <laughs> you know, it's like some it's like some Gentile do-gooder thinking he's going to get some extra points. Because as Nadler said, there are like millions of Jewish people who are anti-Zionist. Some of them are considered um, uh, hard orthodox, and some of them are secular left-wingers, you know. And in fact, Jill Stein... Uh, the a liberal mm -hmm. Green Party representative who happens to be Jewish, he says, Congress just passed a bill saying that certain types of Jews who don't agree with Zionism are bad Jews. She said, that sounds anti-Semitic to me, <laughs> which, of course, it is. But, you know, that whole that whole uh, charade yesterday, and uh, by the way, Massey deserves credit for being the only Republican voting against it. It had nothing to do with Israel or anti-Semitism or Zionism. That was a resolution designed to shut Americans up, to quell free speech, to tell Americans, if you're uncomfortable about what's happening there, shut your mouth. Don't demonstrate. Don't post on Twitter. Because if you do, you're an anti-Semite. 
And that's what it was all about. It was about crushing debate in the U.S. Yeah, so I was going to ask because um, I just see this as a way to like effectively criminalize free speech, any type of criticism of Israel in the U.S. And you know, I think what's even funnier is like, and just how stupid this idea sounds, like a member like the Israeli uh, Knesset that criticizes like Israeli policy by like this weird logic would be basically like anti-Semitic by doing that. Yeah. Like this is how stupid this is how stupid it it sounds. But like yeah. I really do think this is an act of desperation. This is not of a of a political actor that is behaving in a confident manner. They're like they are scared. Um the proliferation of the alternative media space, especially on geo in geopolitics, has really exposed Israel law and even liberal elites you can sense when they cover this stuff they're trying to keep the disgust from publicly manifesting itself when they cover israel now like you look at these like cnn like i remember that wolf blitzer interview with that one um israeli uh military official the bombing of the uh that refugee uh, camp like you would tell like wolf blitzer whenever he was like listening to that israeli military official give his like rationalization for this bombing like the dude was just like trying to hold back like any like form of like this absolute like disgust towards what is like a, like a horrendous act like it's inexcusable but a yeah. lot of these people just can't really show their true true sentiments obviously because it will affect their employment yeah, I mean, even someone like Wolf, I mean, Wolf was in the IDF. I mean, Wolf is hardly a squishy, you know, anti-Zionist Jew. I mean, and, and so all the more to his credit that for him, at least in that interview, his his world as a journalist took precedent over his personal views. You know, I thought it was a great interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really crazy stuff. So do you think that the Israel-Hamas conflict would just be confined to Israel? Or do you think that Hezbollah will enter the mix or other external actors enter the mix or will the u.s try to find a way to like justify some type of punitive action against iran with, uh, once the smoke clears from this incident i think certainly the first couple of weeks um, i thought it definitely could happen i thought it could escalate um you have people like erdogan in turkey you know he went out to his party congress and he's basically like you know saying some stuff that's really hardcore against israel but of course erdogan being erdogan you know he returned back to his office and probably signed a couple of deals with them you know that's what he, that's what he does um but he was talking tough uh hezbollah was re releasing all these videos with their missiles talking tough um iran was talking tough um so it looked like uh, it could definitely have expanded at that point um, but I don't think anyone wants a wide war. I mean, Iran has spent the last, I mean, spent since the 80s. Think about this. Since the 80s, when the U.S. said to Iraq, hey, why don't you destroy Iran? They said, okay, cool. Then they said to Iran, hey, you got to let them do that to you. You better destroy them back. Okay. You know, we played both sides because the neocons in the U.S. wanted them both to be destroyed. And I may have gotten the order wrong, but you get the point. Um, they spent from that period on trying to rebuild the country, trying to achieve scientific achievements, um, you know, infrastructure, uh, building their military up, which is what the Russians have done uh, since the 90s. And I mean, to the point where they've developed uh, 
for example, drone technology that even the Russians um, have found very useful. Um, so you never would have thought that 20 or 30 years ago uh, with Iran. So Iran doesn't want to give all this up. They don't want to be flattened. And they know that Israel will exercise a nuclear option if they feel remotely threatened. Um, Lebanon doesn't want to be flattened again. So no one really wants it. I think the chance of it expanding right now is less. But I think, you know, with the resurgence of the Israeli attacks, you know, they're like, hey, everyone get out of North Gaza because we're going to bomb the shit out of it. And most Gazans said, oh, well, we don't want to get killed. So we'll go to South Gaza. And then they said, Okay, you guys in South Gaza, you got to go somewhere else. We don't know where because we're about to bomb the shit out of you too, you know, <laughs> which is which is what's happening now. And I laugh, but it's sick and you have to laugh. But so I don't know what's going to happen now, but I think the pressure is mounting, certainly on Biden, but probably on Israel as well. Sorry, that's a long answer to question. At this point right now, I don't see an expansion, but anything can happen. I mean, Hezbollah is kicking it back up. They've taken some tough hits. They've blown up some some military camps in northern Israel. That could go on. And, you know, for that matter, you know, Hamas, they don't stand a chance head-to-head military-wise. It's like, you know, your Pop Warner team going up against the NFL. Nevertheless, you know, if you go outside the mainstream media, you go to telegrams and places like that, they are taking some serious hits. They're at a disadvantage. They're rolling in there with conscripts, as my friend Doug McGregor told, you know, said to me. I mean, this is like the um, this is like the you know, Texas National Guard or, or something. These are these are conscripts, and they're going into a place where there are trained, hardened guerrilla warfare experts. And I've seen numbers of videos of Israeli soldiers just getting blown up by the dozens. So it's it's no cakewalk for them for them either at this point. Yeah, one final point about Israel before we delve into dive into other topics. I kind of see this whole attack as like Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, Golda Meir moment, if you will, where he is going to take a huge amount of political damage once the dust settles from this conflict and politics goes back to more or less the new normal in Israel, which is going to be really abnormal if we actually think about it. Uh, do you think he uh, Netanyahu is pretty much going to be like purged out of office once all all of this conflict is settled? You know, I'm not an expert in internal Israeli politics, but from everything that I've seen, he's extremely unpopular, uh, and he's in. You know, um, Alistair Crook. I don't know if you followed him, if you read his yes, stuff. Yeah, he's fantastic. If you listen to, him. yeah, he is fantastic. He was on the Duran. A few weeks ago, and maybe you can dig up the link and, and add it, but your your listeners would really love to hear it because he was there. He was a British diplomat in like the 70s and 60s or whatever. He was there. He's seen it all. He knows Israel like the back of his hand, uh, like our experts used to know things, you know. And he points out, uh, and I'm simplifying it to a ridiculous level, but that Netanyahu is in a real pinch too. Because, like, I think as you started out, on the one hand, he's got the Mizrahi Jews uh, who are hardcore, who want to create the historic land of Israel there. They don't back down. They don't take no. They want to have um, they want to have their own court system uh, and all these things. And they're pressuring him in a big way. And then you have, you know, you have a lot of liberal Israelis that live there. You have a lot of seculars. 
And so he's he's basically, I mean, who would want that job, really? It's only because I guess he likes power so much. But he's in a bind. Everyone hates him. There are still to this day, I mean, in the middle of a war, there are demonstrations in front of his house every night telling him to resign. And he's just trying to stay out of jail for all these corruption charges that have continued uh, you know, to, to, to follow him, certainly in the latter part of his career. So I don't see him being able in the long term to ride this out. But again, I'm not an expert on Israeli internal politics. Yeah, that whole situation is going to be interesting to see how it plays out in Israel. Um, I think with multipolarity, things are just going to get more volatile, and Israel is going to be no ex uh, exception to this trend. Now, back to the geopolitical move that I believe has more or less crystallized multipolarity, Russia-Ukraine. It really does seem now... Uh, based on what I'm reading, that the U.S. is trying to find a way to, like, gracious, well, a ham-fisted way of trying to exit this Ukrainian conflict, which has turned into an unmitigated disaster. You see all these pieces across, like, the Anglosphere media, where they're now, like, throwing, like, the Ukrainian government under the bus, especially Zelensky, and there's, like, more articles coming out of, like, internal drama between Zelensky and uh, generals like Valery uh, Zeluzny and whatnot. Do you think that like the Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is beginning to enter its final stages? Yeah, I mean, I think it was doomed from the beginning. And all the people who said it, all the, all the people that you and I consider experts, you know, Scott Ritter, people like Larry Johnson, uh, people like Colonel Doug McGregor. I mean, they said from the beginning, you, know, you look, you look across the landscape, this is a, this is a disaster. They're never going to win. But you had the neocons, you know, they live in la-la land and they pushed it on the Americans. The Americans have been so programmed to viscerally hate, no matter what Putin does, he's to be hated, you know? If he, you know, passed out free caviar to every American, uh, you know, they'd be saying, well, what's what's he up to? You know, yeah. so, you know, we, we've had, a, you know, hey, thanks, that's Hillary. Thanks, Hillary. She started it. She started it. She lost an election. She had to blame someone. Uh, aside from her ridiculous self, who everyone hates, even her husband, so she blames Putin for it. And so the Democrats, they figure, well, I mean, you know this, you know the whole story. Everyone knows the story. That's Russiagate. So once you establish Russia is the bad guy, then you can do anything to justify it. The military-industrial complex was pissed off because after two years of COVID, they weren't getting any goodies. We weren't starting any new wars, and that makes them mad. And so what you what do you have? You have this Ukraine-Russia war starting up. And it was so bloody obvious from the beginning. It started from 2007 when Putin spoke at Munich, saying, stop expanding NATO toward Russia. We don't like it. It's unnecessary. Uh, you are, you're going to pay for it. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's no upside for anyone. And it just laughed at him. You know, and then it went to the Maidan coup in 2014. They kept pushing. The neocons kept pushing it. Victoria Newland. I kept pushing it, and she's still there. So all of this was inevitable. This was their prize. This is what they wanted. Even um, um, Carl Gershman, the, the founder and head of the National Endowment for Democracy, back, I think, during the Orange Revolution in the early 2000s, said, Ukraine is the prize. And that's that all the neocon globalists 
Trotskyites. That's their view. If we can just capture Ukraine, we can contain Russia. And that's their big goal. And of course, like everything they touch, it turns to crap. And that's what we're seeing unfold uh, before us. And, uh, you know, this week, uh, Thomas Massey, the great uh, representative from Kentucky, was on Tucker yep. Carlson. And he, they made, they both, I forget who said it first, but they made a great point. In the process of doing this, the neocons have killed an entire generation of Ukrainian men. I mean, irreplaceable. There's no one to make the next generation because all the guys are dead. Yeah. It's a bloodbath, and it's very much a, I've argued it's a Anglo-American uh, geopolitical establishment event. Because if you actually think about it, the real winners of this conflict, in my opinion, is this consortium of um, Anglo-American uh, foreign policy NGOs that have long wanted to create a divided rule dynamic between the European continent and Russia. They like that's that's been like a British geopolitical strategy since the beginning to try to separate Russia from the rest of Europe and the US being the de facto superpower successor to the British has carried out this agenda and it's largely consummated it albeit with some major black eyes if you will because of the simple fact that um Russia basically is probably on the verge of destroying the Ukrainian state as we know it. And the U.S. and its NATO satrapies just depleted a lot of their military stocks. And especially with Europe, they I think it's the real big loser in this next to Ukraine. I just have to like cope with like insanely high energy costs. And they've essentially like destroyed a lot of like the working class by doing that. And it's just like a mess all around. Unfortunately, I think nobody's going to learn anything. And and in my opinion, they're probably going to try to pivot to Asia now to contain China and replicate the same, the same disaster there. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, that that's what the neocons do. They always just move on to the next disaster after the one they've created. You know, they, they defecate and they move on and defecate and that's what they do. Like they're like mm-hmm. animals, but, uh, the the world has changed though in the process and in 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 as you as you say i mean the the multipolarity and there are people i think who overdo it but the fact that things that have emerged from the from the ukraine war have been significant uh if you look across the i mean people playing roles that they have not played the chinese playing peacemaker between saudi arabia and iran it's unprecedented in history the Chinese taking an active role in not waging war, but making peace um, through adversaries. They've been involved even in the Russia-Ukraine uh, peace process for what it is, and they've certainly have volunteered their services for it. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of things, you know, the the at least superficially the healing of this uh, the, the Shia-Sunni split, um, and then again going back to our first topic the alignment of most of the rest of the world against Israel. And Israel is more isolated in the Middle East than it has ever been. Uh, and that is a huge thing. And now the fact that the rest of the world knows and understands that the U.S. committed an act of terrorism against its closest ally in blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines, I mean, that turns everything on its head. 
Uh, and it changes the way the world views the United States, I think. Undoubtedly. And to one, um, to one final geopolitical point, do you, uh, because I, I just think about this because nothing exists, like operates in a vacuum where you have like the U.S. that has become increasingly dysfunctional socially and also economically with this the massive debt and constant deficit spending. I think we're in a clear case of imperial overstretch, but these people want to try to um, carry out a pivot to Asia, if you will. Do you think that's like even going to be viable given the domestic and like economic realities the uh, U.S. is facing, or will they actually try to fully follow through with a so-called China confrontation strategy in, as this pivot to Asia is fully realized? Well, we put a chart up on the Rumpel Liver Report uh, earlier this week, and it shows that now for the first time, the servicing of the interest on the U.S. debt has surpassed the entire U.S. military budget. So it's surpassed the second largest ticket item that we have. And those are realities that can't be avoided. The fact that we have to pay such an incredible amount of interest on the debt that they have accrued, particularly under Trump and Biden, that will change what the U.S. can do. We've already seen de-dollarization. A lot of it's because of our wanton use of sanctions. You know, we've just, we've used it as a weapon so for so long that it's forced other countries to develop defenses against it. And so you see more countries trading in shared currencies or finding alternative sources of trade. Uh, so we don't have the dollar hegemony that we had. And as the dollar weakens, it'll be a snowballing effect. So they can pivot all they want to Asia. But the reality is we don't have the money to fight this war. We don't have the industrial capacity to fight the war. And here's a good example of that. You know, when Zelushny, the commander-in-chief of the military in Ukraine, met with, uh, with Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, I'm sure you saw this, Jose, is that, hey, Lloyd, we need 17 million shells, right? <laughs> and, we'll, and, we'll win, and we'll win this thing. Um, no. But the reality is the entire U.S. production of shells in a year is 300,000, you know? <laughs> so there's, we don't have the industrial capacity. Um, you know, we had uh, Scott Ritter speak at one of our conferences, and, and he made a point that Biden's mouth is writing uh, checks that, you know, I forget what he said, his, his, his ass can't cash or what have you. And that's, that's, what's, that's what's happening, yeah. you know? If the U.S. decides to go to war with China, it'll lose, you know? And not a lot of people are saying that because we have been propagandized into thinking we can beat anyone with our hands tied behind our backs. But we'll lose if we go to war with China. Uh, it's just a fact, especially if we initiate, if we initiate a conflict in Taiwan against China, we're going to lose some ca some carrier battle groups, and we may have some nuclear weapons dropped on us. Will but we will lose. So that's when things will come home to 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 really even the most dense propagandized Americans. We we have a we talk a tough talk, but we cannot back it up. Yeah, that's the nature of the U.S. global consumer imperium. To wrap things up. Um, I want to look at this a little bit more big picture because I've been in this quote unquote like libertarian right space for now 
nearly two decades, actually, come to think of it. There's a mixed bag of foreign policy takes from many libertarians and or like right-leaning libertarians. Do you think that things are moving in the right direction in those organizations and with these individuals, or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done there? Foreign policy is such a nightmare. I just wish I'd never gotten interested in it, you know, which has been such a terrible thing to focus on because it's like, you know, no one dabbles in proctology, you know? I mean, you're a proctologist or not. It's not to say people who study foreign policy, you know, should have an exclusive right to aver, you know, to opine on it. But nevertheless, this whole sort of like everyone's got an opinion and it's all as valid as everyone else. It's not necessarily the case because we have to study history. We have to study politics. We have to, to the best of our ability, understand foreign countries. And most, of course, most experts haven't lived overseas, so they don't have this sort of intrinsic understanding that the rest of the world is not exactly like us. Um, so foreign policy is a nightmare. And I think there are a lot of libertarians that get it, but there are a lot of libertarians who do not get it at all. And, you know, you, you've seen me, Jose, I've been like, spent my career like tilting at windmills against groups like Students for Liberty and all these, all these sort of global Trotsky libertarian organizations um, who just don't have a clue, in my opinion, about how things should work. So um, I don't feel supremely confident, certainly not in parties that claim to espouse that philosophy, even if they have good instincts. But you know, then again, maybe I'm being too harsh. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I tend to be of like of a mixed opinion there. I think ultimately we will win be, because we have some structural factors that benefit us as long as it, there is like a relatively free internet and a growing alternative media ecosystem. These type of narratives, these interventionist, pro-Zionist, fanatically pro-Zionist narratives will meet their ultimate fate of like just drifting into total irrelevancy. So I'm uh, optimistic about that. Anyways, Are you still there? Uh, oh yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think this is a good place to to put a bookmark in our conversation, uh Daniel. But as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. And before we depart, uh let my audience know where they can keep up with your latest work. Sure. Uh, thanks for the invitation to do so. Uh, well, Dr. Paul and I do the daily Ron Paul Liberty Report. We do it live at noon Eastern time on Rumble. So you can catch us there live. And a couple hours later, we repost to YouTube and to all of the various audio podcast uh, services. So we'd love to have you follow us there Monday through Friday. Friday is economics. Monday through Thursday are kind of everything else. Um, we also have ronpaulinstitute.org. We have a new website, thank God, finally. So that's that's a big thing for us. And we do hold a couple of conferences at least every year. And that's a great way. Uh, great speakers, of course, but a great way for people of like minds to just get together, visit with each other, which I think is so important. Fantastic. As always, Daniel, you bring much-needed geopolitical insights in a time of just mass chaos and total disinformation too in this space. So I'm very grateful for the content you put out and I'm excited to see what new projects you have in mind. And to my audience, thank you again for your precious attention. 
And with that, El Nino has spoken.